Of bodies changed to other forms, I tell you gods who have yourselves wrought every change. Inspire my enterprise and lead my way in one continuous song from nature's first remote beginnings to our modern times. Hey everyone, welcome back to Soul Scene. This is the third week in our storytelling series, and Aaron decided to choose an excerpt from Metamorphosis, which he is reading and very much enjoying. Why'd you choose that poem, Aaron? No, I wrote that one. Oh, you wrote that? I'm just joking. So it's not actually quite a poem, although I suppose it's poetic. It's a, mm. it's a poem. It's the thing that starts the very beginning of uh, The Metamorphoses by Ovid. Okay. And I always like these. I think they're really interesting because we don't really do them so much today. I think sometimes ahead of books and movies today, you will see the acknowledgments or the dedications mm. or a little note from the author. But rarely is it kind of a first person detached but also a big part or almost a thesis of mm -hmm. what's to come um and in the old days obviously this one is kind of uh referencing the gods mm. whom all of Ovid's readers would have been familiar with yeah been familiar with um whereas today we don't have such a uniformity in religion mm. but I, I just think there's something so wonderful to to the author recognizing the fact that they aren't the sole composers of the story. That they're a vessel for the unveiling of a history. Yeah, a divine history. Yes. Be it the muses, be it the gods. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, I always like when stories start with that. Yeah, invoking the muses like, please speak through me, let me be a vessel for your stories that need to be told. Yeah, there's really nothing like that today. That's why I wanted to start today's episode because episode three in the storytelling, you know, I think the questions for today are not a jumble, but they have potential to be uh, not the most well-fitting together jigsaw. Mm -hmm. So I'm appealing to the muses to please help <laughs> us speak well, speak clearly, make concise points, mm -hmm. not go down too many verbal or rhetorical rabbit holes. Yeah. <laughs> and really, uh, you know, do some solacing. Yeah, I agree. I definitely had a lot of thoughts for the questions from last week. Okay. And I knew that it was going to be a challenge to fit them all in. So I tried to keep them very concise, almost bullet point hmm. to then spark a conversation from each point. So we're going to start with the first question, which is, are there any benefits of re-watching, re-reading, re-consuming media? Yeah. If so, what are they? Well, I think this is one of those questions that we asked with a, with a knowingness, because if the question is, are there any benefits? Like, we know that we're going to be saying yes, mm -hmm. or I think so anyway. Or I've said yes. Now yes. I'm kind of second guessing. I think you're going to say no. But at the same time, I don't rewatch movies that often. I don't reread books that often. Mm -hmm. Purely because I think I haven't read that many books and in the grand scheme watch that many movies. Mm -hmm. So I, I always almost have a, a kind of guilt when I think mm -hmm. about I'm going to rewatch something, even if it's a favorite movie, mm -hmm. because there's so many hundreds and thousands of classics, literature and cinema that I haven't mm -hmm. uh, seen. Yeah, so I broke down this answer into four categories, three of which I use in ex like a personal experience, and the fourth is a very common experience that the average person, I believe, has. So the first one that I had for a benefit of rewatching, rereading, is that you have a more nuanced interpretation as you go along. That's yeah, of kind course. of obvious in yep. English class. Okay, you do a first read just to get the essence of the book, then you go back through and take note of all of the literary devices, then you go through and you unpack it even more 
For me, the example that I chose was Call Me By Your Name because I've watched that probably every year, once or twice since 2017 when I first watched it. And the first time I watched it, I was like, whoa, this is incredible. This is a great love story. And it's still one of my favorite movies. The most recent time we watched it, I was like, oh my goodness. For those of you who haven't watched it, there's two main characters who are in love. But one is like quite older and ends up actually being engaged. But like the other guy doesn't know about it. So I was like, that's like deceptive. And it's kind of, it's still an interesting romance, but it over time, the interpretation that I have of it has changed drastically. Yeah. Like it's the exact same story, exact same movie. But yeah, the last time I watched it versus the first time, it was like just a completely different experience for me. Do you have any films like that? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think what you just mentioned was practically two different benefits in one. Mm -hmm. There is the one, the first one that you said about the the density of good art, I'll say, because not all all movies and not all books really deserve or certainly require a second go through. It's true. But good art typically has some form of layers mm-hmm. of appreciation, be it formal or thematic. Um, and the second is that over time with art, and this is the benefit of rewatching or rereading, you can see yourself reflected mm-hmm. in it in different ways and you can kind of use it as a, as you said, it doesn't change. It's an mm-hmm. unchanging landmark, but as you kind of go further on in the story of your life, it looks different in the distance or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, I have a lot of examples like that, but I was trying to think of some that were things I've actually gained appreciation for over time. And that was a lot harder for me because I was along the same path of thinking that there's a lot of things that I initially fell head over heels for, especially in adolescence or Mm -hmm. obviously childhood, that over time I've been like, "Ah, that's not so good. You know, there's a lot Mm -hmm. of teen angst involved in that. And I thought it was a lot more profound at the time than now I do think so. But for me, I think it's, it's rarer that I watch something or read something, don't like it, and then come back to it and do like it. Mm-hmm. But one example I had for that was A Tale of Two Cities. And mm. this also might be situational because I was prescribed it as homework the first time that I encountered it, the book, obviously. Yeah. And I really, I don't even think I got through it. I was way too bored and it was summer, so mm. I didn't want to be reading. But when you come to something of your own volition, maybe it's a little bit like that yeah. uh, Tom Sawyer thing, I just, yeah, it clicked with me a lot more on the second time. Do you have anything like that? That's a good question. Because I know recently we did a, a retrospective on the Divergent films. Thing is, I had that as an example <laughs> for another one, so I didn't want to use it. Yeah, okay. But No, in, I mean something that you came to like more the second time. No, but that's the thing. So with Divergent, I said my next point was it, you can call back to the emotions of it. Right. So I was thinking Divergent will always have a, a higher rating than it should based on any other movie I'm going to watch. Like if I watched it now, I'd give it like a one star. But it will always hold at least a two star because of, such a bad way of looking at that. Because of how I liked it so much the first time I watched it. But when we were rewatching the series, in my head, it went Divergent was the best film, Allegiant was the worst film. And then we just watched it and it was almost the complete opposite. Like the third film was it had it wasn't an excellent film. It was a little funny, it was a little bit more dramatic. It didn't look awful, it looked like okay. <laughs> But in my head, I remember being like, this is the worst. Like, I hated this. I don't even think I'd like watch it all the way through. I would just watch it in clips because I didn't like it so much. So that's probably a bad example. I think Punch Drunk Love with Time, I'm going to come to like more. Hmm. I really, really didn't like it the first time I watched it. But even in my working memory, it's a little bit more. That's the funny thing about how sometimes you don't even have to rewatch something or mm-hmm. reread something, but just 
it sticks it's like a thorn in your brain that you keep thinking about and you're like yeah actually there were merits that i didn't mm. mind that so much yeah i think also topical we just went to see the new elvis movie mm-hmm. a couple of days ago by directed by baz Luhrmann, and when certainly when i first encountered the romeo and juliet adaptation from the 90s mm. again it was in high school i was like this is hideous and ugly but then when i rewatch it now every time i i think about it or watch it it goes up in my estimation. Oh my goodness. And I love that movie, but I watched it as a 20-year-old, so. Similarly with The Great Gatsby. Mm. There's just something about it that's, again, it's like the density, or maybe it's just more likely it's me um, aging. And not just, I'm not saying it's linear that your tastes always get better or you become a better appraisal of art. Mm-hmm. You just, your your tastes change. Yeah. Right? Like, it's For not sure. the case that everything teenagers like is bad. Mm-hmm. It's just something that, the teenage taste is more attuned to than is the adult taste. Yeah. That brings a, a good segue into my next point, which is that you have a matured understanding each time you watch it because you're always going to be getting older, but it also changes in meaning. So like my example for this one was Lord of the Rings. The first time I watched it, I was probably 14, 15. And I was just like, well, this is epic. This is so cool. <laughs> but then every time I've watched it, you know, once or twice a year since, these are the few movies that I like really rewatch. It gets almost sad. It's a bit more, oh, loss of innocence. Not loss of innocence, but like, oh, it's the end of the era in Middle Earth. It's not just yeah. epic. Because the first time I watched it, it, was like, oh, Middle Earth is awesome. But then you realize it's like, the elves are leaving. Mm. The elves are leaving. Then it's sad. And then it's a little bit more mature, your interpretation of it. Right. Because you understand, I, I would say for myself, because a similar mm-hmm. um, change, I, since I understand more of the world now, our world, that is, mm-hmm you see more of the connections between that and Middle Earth in it. Yeah, the first time you watch it, you're like, oh, this isn't supposed to be an analog. You're basically yeah. like, oh, it's just a cool fantasy. It has nothing to do with Earth today. Mm. You would be wrong. Well, you put your own themes into it, <laughs> yeah. I think. Um, but along those lines, you mentioned watching Call Me By Your Name every year or so, The Lord of the Rings. A rewatch every year is, is something I look forward to, I think. Um, <laughs> you start to get antsy like a couple months before it. Mm-hmm. It's just like a... I suppose like an addict. We do um, basically have to schedule it because I feel like if we didn't schedule it for being once a year, we'd watch it probably every couple of months. <laughs> it's a problem. Yeah. But there's this <laughs> thing called comfort movies. Yeah. And this is art that we return to. I'm kind of expanding the definition of comfort as in movies, not just that we return to to feel mm-hmm. comfortable, but just anything that we, re- that we deliberately turn to that we've seen before or read before mm-hmm. to feel a certain way or to help us, to help put us in a certain mood. Mm-hmm. And... Lord of the Rings is one of those because it's almost like a reset, I mm-hmm. think, especially when you have it scheduled. And this is the other side of this is that it can become not just a ritual for you, but a shared ritual this way. Yeah. Like, I don't know, um, children bedtime stories is a really simple mm-hmm. example, or maybe a family reading the night before Christmas, every night before Christmas, mm-hmm. or Christmas movies in general, actually, is, yeah, is quite a ritual. True. My family, we always watch this one specific version of scrooge a christmas carol um a musical one and because of this because i've watched it every single year of my life around christmas i know all the songs off by heart and so Mm -hmm. too does everyone in my family yeah and it's funny because it's not like a really popular movie so not everyone knows the songs but Mm -hmm. everyone in our family does and so that's like an in joke yeah or harry potter is another one because your family just tears that movie to pieces in a good way yeah yeah in a good way Mm -hmm. like it's not an unhealthy thing it's not like the Disney adults who are just drowning in merchandise. No offense to any of those who may be listening. But mm-hmm. um, 
there's just something about having being able to quote things to people and that's just something that you've shared and that's your thing it's, mm -hmm. it's quite a tender notion I think yeah I think so that was my last point of it was this experiential control of rewatching things but I think for us we rewatch movies we've never like I've never rewatched a tv show really besides when I was a kid I feel like that's different than doing so as an adult yeah I've never done it with another person yeah so I think a lot of people have like a comfort show, be it Friends, be it The Office, whatever. Mm -hmm. And for me, I never fully understood that personally because with the TV shows, it is so... The first time I watched The Office, for example, the jokes were funny. But then now I rewatch it and I'm like, these aren't funny. These aren't like, it's just... Because you've had it before. Yeah. For some people, for comedy, some people it's... like it, yeah. yeah. And it's comforting to them. They know what happens at the end what have you. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's apparently a really good tool for emotional regulation. Um, but I was like, okay, this is proven, so I can't really dispute it. But also I feel like it might just be a kind of way to postpone feelings, to kind of suppress feelings. And there's also this hypothesis called the emotional, or the social surrogacy hypothesis, which is that, especially during COVID, this was studied, you're isolating in your house people do that to them like it's self-inflicted isolation or just you literally have to and you're watching friends for the fourth time and it's those this are your hypothesis friends. is that they're your friends yeah. and our brains can't really tell the difference mm -hmm. and it was like and it's kind of a good thing because it leads to lower rates of depression and yeah. feeling of, of isolation but i feel like yeah as i'm trying to explain it might just be postponing it because when you come to the realization Oh, these aren't these people aren't real. Right. It might almost make you more upset than if you just kind of face that fact I'm alone. Yeah. Without that kind of drawn out experience of isolation. No, I know that I know that hypothesis well. I've lived it many a time. Yeah. Um, in I think there's two different types of situations. And one is adults who have controls of their life mm -hmm. who or for whom watching the office in exchange for having an actual social life is probably a bad thing because they don't mm -hmm. realize, as you say, that they're missing the friends. And so they just, you know, they're like, well, this is where I get my laughs and this is where mm -hmm. I get my, my camaraderie. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other example, which is like the sad person who maybe doesn't have full control of their life for mm -hmm. whom I wouldn't begrudge them yeah. finding their outward in a TV show that's familiar because Maybe they don't have full control over their circumstances or something. Yeah. Like that was in me in high school when I used to watch TV shows because I didn't have any friends nor mm -hmm. really any means of making friends. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it was the healthiest thing, but I think sometimes you have to pick your poison a little bit. Mm -hmm. As you said, depression or watching binge watching a TV show or something. Yeah. But I do think that can be a question for next week. Um, something like our relationship to TV characters, maybe mm -hmm. compared to movie characters, because it's been on my mind a, a lot. Question. The way that I mean, I, for me, still there's some very cozy episodes of Friends where mm. it feels like you have friends, yeah, because you're you're a mirror into this one apartment, basically, where mm -hmm. everyone's hanging out and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I definitely don't know where I stand on it definitively, but I do think it's a bit of a situational thing. I feel yeah. like we perhaps as a society do it a little too much mm. and then it isolates us from one another. It allows us to feel like you don't have to have relationships and it might be contributing to a bit of an unsolicine way of life. Yeah. So yeah, I feel like today it's like, yeah, it happens. But in the solicine, I feel like these 
what are the parasocial, it's not parasocial when it's with a TV show, but no, kind sure, of sure it would be. parasocial relationships aren't the end goal for society. I don't know if we can add another a prefix onto that, maybe ficto parasocial or something, because <laughs> they're, they're not real people. Mm -hmm. But still, it's like, Joey and Chandler, those, mm -hmm. are, my, those are my guys. Yes. Just hanging out with the bros. Um, mm -hmm. My last point on rewatching and rereading is that it gives you an appreciation for the whole piece, not just a certain part of it. Like, mm. there's a lot of movies that I've only watched once, and therefore, when I think of them, instantly it's just a couple scenes that return to my mind mm. because those were the scenes that, on first viewing, were the most eye catching yeah. or the most um, exhilarating or the saddest or whatever it may be. But I know that if I went back to those, if they're good movies, if yeah. they're good art, if I went back to them, over time, my favorite scenes would start to be different. Mm, it's like when you listen to an album and it's like the, e not the EPs, the singles. Yeah. You love them immediately, but then yeah, over exactly. time, maybe track nine. That's exactly what I was thinking about. <laughs> Especially what I said about TikTok last week, does it with individual songs, mm. as in, instead of liking just the chorus, you like different parts of it. And that's, like, can you think of something for yourself? Like I mentioned Harry Potter for my uh, family and for myself, certainly the first two movies it isn't like the big famous meme, uh, you know, cultural relevance uh, moments that are my favorite parts of those movies. It's mm -hmm. the smaller parts that, I mean, those movies are really big. So they're still in like the, the social consciousness, but mm -hmm. they're not what really comes to mind when I think most people think of Harry Potter. It's little idiosyncratic moments of production or dialogue or something mm -hmm. that I'm like, that's really funny. Over time, you start to look forward to those parts a little bit. Do you yeah. anything like that? Um, well, my family really likes High School Musical and yeah. the whole series, so we definitely have these funny memories of us reenacting scenes, and it's not like we're just reenacting, we're all in this together and get your head in the game. Like, we will reenact, like, a random scene <laughs> from the pool side. Whenever we're at the pool, it'd be like, oh, this is funny because it reminds me of uh, Troy and Gabriella when they go to the pool in High School Musical 2. We reenact a lot of things from those movies, and just every time you're on a field of grass, you have to do the bet on it, running, <laughs> like swiping your hand in the pool, like <laughs> do you? my family's version of your guys's Harry Potter. Mm. But yeah, our High School Musical obsession is a bit deep, runs deep. <laughs> <laughs> but we also, my sisters watched the uh, Mako Mermaids and H2O just add water, like they went through a mermaid phase, and I was a bit older when they were in that phase. But it's funny, they'll always quote these random, very low-budget mermaid TV shows. We'll always quote those. And like, if you're in the water or you're near water, you're like, I can't get wet or else I'll turn into a mermaid. We have a lot of really niche references, I suppose. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Another kind of silly point I had about rereading was the Bible in terms of things requiring multiple passes to explore the different thematic layers. <laughs> it's true. Because no one ever says about the Bible or the Quran or any religious text, ah, I've already read that verse. <laughs> or now I've already read that book. Because, I mean, in this case, it's because they're treated literally as uh, religious texts. And so they have mm -hmm. not just, um, you know, huge rereadability, but mm -hmm. literally, that, that, meaning that word literally, literally mm -hmm. infinite rereadability according to the people who you know, think they're divine. Yeah. So because we consider those a form of moral uh, instruction, mm. you can go back to them over and over again. Yeah, you can have revelations, reading them in a different time of your exactly, life and so exactly. on. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I think that with, with good art, obviously we don't think that the new Elvis movie is divine. We don't think it was mm -hmm. filmed by God. 
but if something is made by a good artist mm -hmm. then you can kind of scale it according to that is what i'm saying mm -hmm. like you can have a piece of trash which is barely worth the first watch and mm -hmm. then you have something religious which is worth infinite yeah and everything else you can kind of scale along yeah with. that's interesting i like that one more thing i had about this is that it's a little bit more when you're a little older but even perhaps when you're a kid you can watch a film or read a book and it really calls back the emotions of the first read oh, yeah. and not just the experience of turning the page, oh my goodness, he's dead, or oh my goodness, they're together, of like, I was trying to escape a really hard time in my life or this was a really celebratory time in my life when I watched this film mm. and so on. And so it's not just the, the art itself of like, oh, I want to go back into that world or that story because yeah. it's comforting. It's I want to go back to that time in my life. Yeah. People feel this with music a lot. Yeah. But I have it very distinctly with the Odyssey. Mm -hmm. Whenever I, because I first read that in class actually in grade 11 and it was just, it was summary. It was just pure adventure for me. Mm -hmm. So that's, it always brings me back to that, that feeling. Do you have anything like that? Yeah. Um, you also always say Wind Waker, the Yeah. Video yeah. Games. Video games, I think also is probably a second to music for most people mm -hmm. because it's such an intimate experience and it takes mm -hmm. so long and it's so immersive when you're doing it. Yeah. I'm trying to think. Is any films like that? There's a few that I remember watching with friends when I was first getting into movies and those experiences were really special to me because I didn't watch a lot of movies at home. So it'd be, oh, okay, I went to a friend's house and watched this movie and it was very just pleasant. It was quiet. We were all just sitting in this dark room watching Inception but it was, it felt so like it, like my heart can like feel the moment. <laughs> and it was just inception. It's not like we were watching Inside Out where everyone was like crying at the same moments, but it was just, yeah. Lord of the Rings definitely has that. Cause I remember, I don't know if I said this story on the podcast, but the first time I watched Lord of the Rings, we went just like four nights in a row to a friend's house, just a group of us. And we're watching the extended editions just night after night after night to try and finish them all on this week. And like we'd be there till like three in the morning. I was too young to be out till three in the morning. <laughs> I don't know who picked me up, who drove me home, why my parents left me go. But <laughs> that experience is so funny because it's just a random group of people. Half of them I didn't even wasn't even friends with. They were like ten years older than me. We were just there watching Lord of the Rings, and it was just yeah, very special experience. And I really feel that whenever you and I rewatch it, or me and my family rewatch it. Communal storytelling. Yeah. Organism of the week. Yeah. So I just realized I forgot to draw it, mm -hmm. but instead maybe I'll mime it for anyone watching on YouTube. Worm? Think bigger. Snake? Yeah, snake. <gasps> wow. And also, this is not an organism, but an idea. Idea organism of the week. You're looking at me like that's against the rules, but I remember you chose a genus, I think it was last week or some week before. So anything goes at this point. I did choose fake plant once as well. Fake plants. <laughs> I suppose this is kind of a fictional one. The idea of snake is what I'm thinking about as an icon of storytelling to fit the semester, mm -hmm. especially snakes in mythology, in stories. The fact that they are so ubiquitous in our Western tradition as the evil villain. Yes. I, I don't know. I've always thought that was really amazing. And it came to mind because I was reading Ovid and there is a story with Cadmus and I'm going to read an excerpt from it. It's just about a big snake in a forest who attacks them. It says, There stood an ancient forest undefiled by axe or saw, 
and in its heart a cave close veiled in bows and creepers with its rocks joined, joined in a shallow arch and gushing out a wealth of water. Hidden in the cave there dwelt a snake, a snake of Mars. Its crest shone gleaming gold, its eyes flashed fire, its whole body was big with venom, and between its triple rows of teeth its three-forked tongue flickered. The Tyrians reached the forest glade on their ill-fated quest and dipped their pails into the water. At the sound, the snake thrust from the cave its long dark head and hissed, a frightful hiss. Their blood ran cold. The pails fell from their hands, and horror-struck, they quaked in shock and terror. Coil by scaly coil, the serpent wound its way, and, rearing up, curved in a giant arching bow, erect for more than half its length, high in the air. It glared down on the whole wide wood, as huge, if all its size were seen, as in the sky, the snake that separates the two bright bears. Hmm. Kind of a longer excerpt than I actually thought it was. No, but that's interesting. When you're telling that story, it's funny to me how, because through all of our lives, snakes have been depicted as evil, sneaky, dangerous. Yeah. But it's like, if you like to a child, we're like, oh, there's this long tube-like creature <laughs> that has no legs, no hands, and makes a noise like this. Yes. They just think it was funny and cute and like silly. Yeah, but maybe. Then, like that's not a scary image of this wiggly tube. <laughs> but then you said like he hissed a frightful hiss. Yes, yes. And it's like hiss should be funny, but because of the conditioning, right? Hiss is scary. Yeah, there is an extent to that to which that's why I mentioned in our Western tradition it's like this mm -hmm. because obviously it all comes from the Bible, the snake in the Garden mm -hmm. of Eden, and I kind of foolishly thought that that was universal mm. but it isn't which is what really fascinates me because even in greece i mean this story cho shows him as a villain but the snake is not always just evil they're also mm -hmm. symbols of medicine like if you've seen that famous uh image we still use it today in like hospitals mm -hmm. it's the staff with a snake wrapped around it because mm -hmm. it's a sign of transformation and wellness and fertility in a lot of different cultures because um or they think because it looks like the umbilical cord and also, obviously, they shed their skin, so that's kind of like, hmm. you know, aging or whatever, but not in a bad way. They have various different um, serpents in Chinese mythology that represent a ton of different things, often good. And it's like, I don't know, I think that's really cool because it's, it's just what you said about the storytelling being contextual and affecting on such a wide scale our own view of the world. You know, from a young age, it's like not everyone's read the story of the Bible, but the story of the Bible snake has filtered down into, mm. into Harry Potter or Indiana Jones or like yeah. so many other things that kids and young adults are exposed to and it makes them hate snakes. Mm. I mean, I do think there's an extent to which snakes are predatorial and they can kill yeah. humans and they're very alien looking and... We don't really understand them, which is probably why they popped up in a lot of villain roles in the first place. Like mm -hmm. There is something about that. But also, as you said, the stories impact so much our view of them. Mm -hmm. For sure. And our next question for the week is, what are the dangers of mapping our lives onto stories? And that isn't a great segue, but I still... There we go. So my thoughts about that is that... We are very imperfect in terms of our computing skills and our brains. So as we were saying with the last question, our brains can't really tell the difference between Joey and Chandler as our friends or Aaron and Alicia as your friends. And 
Well, having real friends. Yeah. <laughs> and because of that, it's hard to consume films. And even if you were completely like, oh, I'm not going to model my life after this, it's impacting your brain's ability to like map these patterns. Okay, this is the pattern for a relationship. There's going to be drama. There's going to be these twists and turns. There's going to be someone's in danger. Someone is in danger of cheating. And we're always thinking of these things in our real-life relationships, even if in real life, life is much less dramatic. Yeah. So I feel like that is my first thought about this question. It's a good point, especially how you mentioned movies, because obviously people have been reading stories or listening to stories for such a long mm -hmm. time, and I don't think it was such a danger to them, because when you read something, it's, it's more obvious than it's to your brain that it's not real and that it's mm -hmm. just a story. But when you watch something, especially in a movie theater where the screen is giant, mm -hmm. and especially on really great um, 4K modern cameras where everything, it just looks real. I remember this um, advert for television. I'm sure there's a lot like it where there's a jungle mm -hmm. and the TV is placed in the jungle, but the TV is like showing footage of the jungle. Mm -hmm. So it just doesn't look like it's there. It's like the mm -hmm. frame disappears. And, and maybe we can talk about that next week, actually, the the pros and cons of increased immersion in storytelling. Mm. Because I think about this a lot with virtual reality as well. Yeah. Because if we don't think our brain is so good at designing films from real life, what about yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. if you're just completely wrapped in it? And this mm. is one of the reasons why we'll probably get into this more next week, but I like movies that very obviously don't look like real life. Yeah. And I like things that are theatrical. I like plays, the opera, musicals, because because they're not so naturalistic or yeah. even if something is shot and colored differently than the real world or if it's on film you can see the grain even if it's very small and it makes it look more just like a piece of art on the wall rather mm -hmm. than a documentary yeah a personal like a memory almost mm. in your memory and i think today we make too many movies that are dystopian i suppose it doesn't have to be dystopian and like there's been an apocalypse and we're all surviving, but dystopian in not pastoral, basically, not utopian. And I feel like movies, when they first started being made, there was a lot of, let's just show some really perfect people in a really perfect place. And then now in the kind of postmodern art era, it's like, no, we can't just keep doing perfect, perfect, perfect. Yeah. And I agree with that. Like, that'd be boring if every single film was just the good guys, but like everything's black and white. Right. I think gray is important too represent but perhaps a little bit more of the black and white films yeah to inspire us but it's also like it's also not realistic the fact that almost every character in the movies now has some kind of skeleton in their closet it's mm -hmm. like most people don't have some big secret or haven't yeah don't have a big um dark past i mean everyone has vices but most people aren't so mm -hmm. evil i don't know how to say it um it's very well documented the different eras in comic book heroes because in the 90s it was like everyone started becoming an anti-hero. It was like Spider-Man suddenly mm -hmm. has these levels of gray and Batman does as well. And obviously that's all our superhero movies today, which are so huge. Mm -hmm. And we were watching the original Superman movie mm -hmm. with Christopher Reeves in 1978, I think. Um, and so much of that movie is just him uh, going around town helping people. Yeah. And we were like, this is genuinely refreshing if not revolutionary mm -hmm. to us to actually show the superhero as a moral paragon because yeah. we never see that anymore like all we're always um pushed down our throats mm -hmm. now is the fact that superman actually you know he's he's got some gray to him and it's not yeah. all black and white and it's like 
if we in our 20s very rarely have seen this on screen then mm -hmm. kids today who are raised on the superhero movies probably have never seen it on screen yeah and i think another issue with us not making them today because people often say and you even we even say like oh they've been made just watch those yeah, yeah, yeah. but the problem with a lot of those is that they're made in the 40s to the 80s and so they're just racist misogynistic well, i mean the problem is kids don't watch them that too but i think there's also just a lot of it's like oh it's black and white but the main character is also just super racist because it was made in the 40s yeah there's some examples of that but i'm talking about superman that's no, just a, a perfectly fine superman. movie yeah but i just mean no harm in making more hmm. to anyone out there who's thinking of making a film just make a <laughs> make another superman please another danger that i saw is that people in movies are yeah, as we said, very different from people in real life. So it causes drama, but I also think it causes a little bit of selfishness, like the main character trend of like, I just pretend like you're the main character in a movie. Oh, yeah. And I think that's like fun to an extent. It's a fun idea. I like to do it. You're walking down the street listening to music and you're like bopping. It makes you a little bit less self-aware, but it also makes you a little bit less aware of everyone else. Yeah, I mean, I think it's narcissism. Basically, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that was my biggest point of the dangers of mapping our lives onto stories, as you say, is, I th well, let me preface it by saying I think it's mostly a good thing because mm -hmm. all through history we've mapped ourselves onto stories. We've read mm -hmm. stories of the Bible and been like, I relate to that. Yeah. And that's why I think relating, relatability, that's something that's so, that word has been so in vogue over the last decade mm -hmm. to the point that I remember being absolutely shocked in high school that it wasn't a word. Yeah. And it probably is by now. But it wasn't always a word. And I was like, then what do people use for this? Mm -hmm. And maybe it's because they're just, their conceptions of stories were different. Mm -hmm. But I think that relating to stories is, is very, very important. Mm -hmm. And um, because they can be moral guidance or they can teach us the lessons so that we don't have to make the mistakes or whatever. Yeah. But with the narcissism, I just think it, it's a little bit too much obsessing over the, the optics of everything we do. Mm -hmm. And as you say, you kind of, fictionalize other people in your lives as characters which mm -hmm. is really dangerous and i know this sounds like some kind of it sounds like i'm talking about extremes but i think a lot of people do this to a very low level mm -hmm. you you narrativize absolutely everything mm -hmm. between people in a way that is very informed by movies even if we don't really realize it mm -hmm. um i remember some i don't remember the who it was but there was some interview that i was watching with a musician or a movie maker or just an artist and they were talking about their career and they were talking about what they were struggling with hesitating to do when creating something was to really just um, create it from how they were feeling at the time because they couldn't get out of their head the idea that well I'm 28 now I have to be making this mm -hmm. and they were thinking about it as in I'm looking back on my career once it's finished and thinking about it from like a bird's eye view, basically. Yeah, you're thinking, how will this look in my memoir? Yeah, exactly like that. And yeah, there's always like moments when that's a good thing to consider, but definitely is dangerous. And I was thinking it is definitely more destructive to your relationships than it is to yourself. Because if everyone has their own narrative about, oh, this is the class clown in a friend group, and this guy is the serious one, it's dangerous to, dangerous to the other people in your life, I mm. think. Because it's like you're fictionalizing them. They're like, I'm not just, like, I'm more than this. Yeah. <laughs> that's the role I have to play when I'm in this friend group or what have you. And I also had a note on, I guess it goes with the narcissism, but it also is like, we probably consume way too much because of 
what we consume in media. So like we buy too much and oh, we yeah. spend too much and we're too obsessed with creating a space that looks like it's in a movie versus just creating a space that's practical. Aesthetics. So I was thinking, how will this apply to the solo scene or how does this question, like the dangers of mapping your life into movies? Yep. And I said, it's just in the solo scene, I think there'll be more options for role model movies and more of a consciousness of everything I consume is going to be reflected in my life. And so making more conscious decisions of what you consume and how you consume them. And being really confident in your own identity instead of having to say, I'm a Harry, I'm a Ron, I'm a Hermione. You can yeah, say, that's true. oh, I like, I like them. But I read this, this quote this week that I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to remember it exactly, but it was something like Gen Z is so obsessed with aesthetics and especially labeling them as in, mm -hmm. I'm going to take a little bit of the 80s, a little bit of the 90s, a little bit of whatever they call the 2000s, mm -hmm. um, Y2K, Y2K, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and the reason they do this is because they're trying to import the authenticity that they don't have mm -hmm. in their lives. And I was like, yeah, that's so true. I feel that because... You watch an old movie, and I know this is funny because it's a film, but rather, let's say you watch an old documentary or just videos of old people hanging out in the day, that mm -hmm. is, and it just seems so... Authentic. Yeah, so authentic, and yeah. people don't have this, this feeling of posing that we talked about mm -hmm. a couple episodes ago. Yeah, for um, sure. The final... Oh, you mentioned Solocene. I think we should have a Solocene question for next week. Mm -hmm. What about designing Solocene some kind of storytelling place, theater? Ooh, yeah. Okay. Um, final question was, why are there no smartphones in movies? And I intended this as a really deep question, but ended up <laughs> treating it rather shallowly. So apologies in advance for that. It's fine. I was thinking of this question and realized it was one of those formative questions of forming this entire podcast. Mm. Because we talked about it probably three years ago. We were like, wait a second. Even movies that are set in 2020. Yeah. They're always, oh, no, there's no power. Oh, no, we have to go to the country. Oh, no, I left my phone at home. Almost every single film. Yeah. And then every film that we love is from the 90s or, like, pre-cell phones. <laughs> and, I just, yeah, we realized that they were like, why then? Why is that the case? Right. And we I, asked that question years ago, so we've had a lot of time to think about it. <laughs> my first answer was just from the practical perspective that it's it's almost inherently uncinematic. Mm -hmm. It's completely static mm -hmm. so because most people are sitting or laying in some unphotogenic pose while they're on mm -hmm. their phone. Um, it's a boring way of progressing the plot unless the film is about the character's relationship to the phone. Mm -hmm. Like eighth grade is a good example. And yeah. that's why I say it's not quite inherently uncinematic because that movie makes it look uh, interesting, mm -hmm. visually that is, but in a way that is dark and as if the internet is like some yeah. Darth Vader-esque villain. That's the thing. I had a classification that I was trying to do for a few films that were made recently. And it was the phone, the films that try and act like phones are good or phones are just like a part of life. And the, every film that tries to do that ends up being really bad. Yeah. And, and, and examples, also, sorry. sorry, I think also movies that try to do that end up Maybe this is just me because I'm the way I am, but you end up coming away from it 
actually with the opposite example it's like man yeah. phones really do phones really are bad there's a famous quote about <laughs> war movies that every single war movie no matter how pacifistic it tries to be is really quite ends up being pro-war in a certain mm -hmm. way and i think it's like that with phones yeah but the opposite yeah being anti-phone my thoughts of examples i just had two for where it was poorly used where um i literally wrote in my notes fear you know what i mean <laughs> Dear Evan Hansen. Dear Evan Hansen. Because there's that scene oh, where they're all watching him sing, and it's just so bad. And it's like, oh, it's so good. His message got right. out there. I, that film is a whole life. Well, let's you know? unpack. So that scene um, <laughs> is indicative, I think, of all these movies that have a scene where something goes viral or people are sharing mm -hmm. memes or it has some really bad social network ripoff of TikTok yeah. or Facebook or Google even. And mm -hmm. those are the movies that you can tell no one involved uses the, the internet or uses their yeah. phone or has really grown up with it. Mm -hmm. So that this is a second layer of... That's a second layer, it's, yeah. It's, um, if someone, if there's a scene of like something going viral, me or you could um, be, at least inform it, you know, mm -hmm. and make it seem realistic. Yeah. But it's, it's always corny when it's like some 50-year-old mm -hmm. director and writer who, well, I think this is how it goes viral and it just yeah. is not at all realistic. Yeah. I think there was a point that we crossed in our history, probably 2013. And I'm thinking up until then, the devices that people were using were still big enough that you could show it. I'm thinking of iCarly. Like, that was all about a web series, like a YouTube series, basically. And But because it was, okay, we have to record in a studio, we have to edit it. They were using, like, big cameras and stuff. Like, it was cinematic, be cinematic, it's iCarly. But it was, you could see it all. Yeah, I mean, the characters had to move. Mm -hmm. But then when you have a movie like He's All That, or wait, she's, He's All That. The remake. The remake. They're always on their phones, so you have to, because it's a phone, you have to have the bubbles up above their head. Oh, and on they the screen, yes. And they have to have yes. overreacting to everything, like, oh, I can't believe it, have you seen this? And it's just like, no. And it, I said, it literally always looks bad because phones <laughs> stand out in real life. <laughs> Like the monoliths in 2001. Alicia does um, <laughs> Addison Ray. <laughs> no, but I feel like in every single film where they have iPhones. What's her name in that movie, though? Pageant. Yeah. <laughs> Pageant. I hate that movie. This is really not my favorite. Right. So phones like the monoliths in 2001. They no, just always stand out. And they're always, it's and, like. And that's why you can't shoot them positively. Like no one's no. dancing around the, the monoliths in 2001. They're, no. they're looming. That's why I think eighth grade did it with the glow. Yeah, eighth, eighth grade did it well. And then I had another couple of examples. Parasite uses phones really well. Mm. And it's not like they're... Sometimes they're crowded around and watching a movie. Mm. Um, but there's also... They use it really realistically in how people communicate. And I thought that was done really well. But then I was thinking about all the movies that are set in the modern world where if there was phones, it would just break the movie. You know, like there's so many of those. It's like Romeo and Juliet was set in... It was made in 1996, but it was set in the 90s, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and it's like if they actually said it in the 90s, they would have been able to shoot a text to each other. Hey, I'm going to fake my death. Well, yeah, I mean, that's you. the thing with Romeo and Juliet. It's not just movies wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. So many of our core stories wouldn't work if yeah. we had instant communi communication mm -hmm. is one thing. Yeah, and a few other on my list of movies that would be ruined was Forrest Gump. <laughs> the whole part of him sitting on the bench waiting for the bus is like, wouldn't be waiting for the bus if he had Google Maps and Breakfast Club wouldn't work because everyone would just go to 
go to breakfast club, go to detention, be on their phone for the few hours, <laughs> then go home. Sure, just go to the breakfast club. <laughs> it's true, it's true. But it's true. Um, and then home alone, obviously. Right. If there were cell phones, <laughs> probably could have just, well, I guess you could have called the police, they had a landline, but you know, it could have, wouldn't um, have worked the way it did. Yeah. <laughs> Mainstream was a movie that just came out a couple years ago, right? That's oh. about um, going viral and cell phones. And it's just what I was saying about anytime I think movies, maybe it's because there's such large production uh, productions, there's so many voices involved, mm-hmm. that anytime they try and make a statement on this one thing, which I, I think, despite it being about social networks and the way that our social fabric is changing, it's really an intimate thing, mm-hmm. um, the way that people interact with technology. Yeah. And so anytime I think it tries to do it, because maybe because of the scale of the production, I don't know. Like I think a book, there have been books that tackle it quite, mm-hmm. quite well and quite accurately. It's very hard to film it positively. I mean, most people, just think about it. If you are scrolling for however long on Instagram or whatever, and if you had footage of yourself doing it, you just look like a zombie. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure scientists have looked at the way we blink and the way that we, our eyes work when we're looking at screens, mm. um, say, on the internet, is completely different to how they actually work in mm. nature, right? Like, they, there's some functions that are just, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's bizarre. Yeah. Another point I had about the phones is that we like characters more interesting than us. And also mm-hmm. we like to see them being more interesting than us. So again, this is like yeah. a practical thing where it's like when people say, how come characters never go to the bathroom in movies? It's mm-hmm. like, because we don't want to see that. Yeah. And, but the thing with the bathroom is that it's something we have to do. Mm-hmm. Whereas phones, actually, we don't have to do it. So it's yeah. like, well, why don't characters go in their phones in movies? Mm-hmm. Most people, it's like, because we don't want to see that. That's boring. Yeah. It's like, well, why do you do it so much? Yeah, <laughs> or, I listed me. as when we're trying to conceive of a fictional world and we're trying to cut back things that are, well, it's not really idealistic, it's not pretty to watch. Phones are quite literally the first thing to go because I feel like you've probably seen more people go to the bathroom movies than you have oh, yeah, of course. sitting scrolling on Instagram. Yeah. I know there's like, oh, you can take a picture, but I'm specifically, there's probably very few. Yeah put to film that aren't about that in a negative way i mean yeah because anytime you show it, it's negative mm-hmm. that's what i'm saying um the other thing is that movies show character through their real life interactions whereas mm-hmm. so many of our interactions they are obviously virtual and kind of a thought experiment i had for this was again lord of the rings if in the fellowship when the first movie when all the fellowship gathers in rivendell if that had just been virtually <laughs> Just to picture Being it. Over Zoom. Yeah, I mean, there there is the Zoom uh, cast reunion, right? That happened yes. during quarantine, and because we're such mega fans, I remember we actually watched that and did enjoy it. That was probably the peak of our Lord of the Rings uh, fandom or something. I mean, that's that's fun. But just imagine if that had been the movie. Yeah. It's like, well, why wouldn't that be just as good? But why it's more not realistic. though? Why not? It's more practical. If they had all been gathered like virtually, you can't or something. see. What do you like, mean? Imagine, okay, they're all meeting on, you see them on the Zoom screen. They're all different creatures. <laughs> One's a wizard. Height? Can't see the height difference? Yeah. Like, they're all, they're all just different, yeah. And you can't <laughs> see people in their space, their interactions, their body language is yeah. so important. You don't have body language on your phone. It's true. You could have, like, I was thinking of the film Searching, which is a film shot, shown yeah. entirely through screens, yeah. which was an interesting experiment of... It was always shown through a shown through his search history, through him FaceTiming someone. And it really is a good example of even though it was all it's kind of just a normal movie, the things were lost. Like you couldn't see him 
can't see him being anxious and you can't see hear the background noise and things like there's so many different elements to existence that cannot be captured through a screen yeah it's true my final point was a little bit of a side one it was about comedy because so much of ours is it's not really relevant to the question i guess but so much of ours is things we read online it's like, well, that was really funny. Do you remember that yeah. video? That's really funny. Those memes or this quote that I heard. Um, and all through history, it's like, even before books were really prevalent, mm -hmm. where was, what did people find, what were people laughing at mm -hmm. so much? People making mistakes, perhaps? Or funny, <laughs> like, things that are just... People falling over. Yeah. Funny things that happen in real life. Yeah. Which I still, I'm not saying that everyone only laughs at memes. Today. That's mm -hmm. not the case. But I think it's... the ratio of that to the real life uh, experiences being funny or even telling jokes is, yeah. is wildly different now. Yeah, and you think about the early viral videos where oh, it would be someone getting lost, some, something that wouldn't happen today with the phone, someone asking a silly question. Yeah. Someone saying, oh, what does this mean? Like they misread a sign or something, but they would never, were much less social. Like my mom is visiting and we see her talking <laughs> to people on the bus and we're like, Oh my goodness, she's talking to people on the bus, but we won't do that. But that's how a funny situation would arise. It's like true. Talking to your neighbor and them saying something funny or them being like, what are you doing? Anyway, it really... Was, yeah, I just think it's, it's like, has there been a great comedy since, um, since smartphones? Mm -hmm. I think that's a question, a comedy movie that is. Yeah. Because it's so, it's so different now. Like it changes yeah. the things that we found funny. Yeah, I feel like we could talk about how comedy will be in the solo scene. Will we go back yeah, to stand-up yeah, yeah, clubs? Yeah. Will there be... Seinfeld 2, which is called Aaron, and so you. Yeah, I don't think I would make for a very good uh, TV show character, but I guess we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening. Bye.